Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, we have with us Boss Brook. Hey, Boss, how you doing? Doing good. How are you? Great. It's great to have another fellow podcaster on. Boss, of course, hosts with Benedict the Contravariance podcast, which is awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, of course. Always nice to be invited, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. So you recently talked about on the latest podcast episode how... You left your current company, and I know you um, you ended Swift Weekly. Is that correct? Or you're hoping somebody else picks it up? Right. So first of all, yes, I left my last job or my latest job somewhere last week, or maybe it's two weeks at this point. Time is weird. Yes, especially in 2020. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I'm looking forward to, to what's next. So I'm starting a new job on November 2nd. So that will be exciting. And yeah, so I took over the Swift Weekly brief from Jesse Squires, who started it, I think, in January 2018, if I remember correctly, or 17 even. So it did that for quite a while. And it's it's been great to be able to, you know, continue building that resource for the community and making sure that there's an overview of what's going on in the open source projects of Apple. But, you know, with something that is so repetitive like at some point it's not that you know challenging anymore not that interesting anymore and i've had some really great help from some really amazing people and lately a lot of help from from christops grinbergs yeah we had christops on the show a few months ago and he was talking about yeah helping out with the newsletter right so i basically told him like you know it's been quite a few years that i've done this i've had a lot of fun doing it but like i'm also ready to at some point say you know if somebody else would want to take over the lead then that would be great this felt like a good time for it he stepped up and said hey you know this is something i want to do so he'll be taking over the lead and i'll be going on to new and, and other interesting projects for me well, it sounds like the newsletter is in good hands with Chris Apps. We've had him on talking about WebSockets and GraphQL, so he definitely knows his stuff. So it's a definitely a valuable resource for the community, so I'm really happy that it's in good hands. Yeah, totally. So like, I find it really exciting to you know be able to pass the stick and, and give this to someone else and, and basically give them this platform also to you know, learn about writing and to share this with the community. So you have a new job and you step down on your role for Swift Weekly. Speaking of starting something new, we had a Apple event recently. So what do you think? What were your just overall thoughts? So this will actually be discussed in uh, the upcoming Contravariance podcast as well. I'm still happy with my iPhone 10. So what they announced was the, the iPhone 12, all the kinds of iPhone 12s, as well as the HomePod mini. HomePod mini is not something I'm really interested in because we have some Bose speakers at home. So we basically have that kind of situation covered. I have a Echo B thermostat. That is our home speaker, which the kids love because then they can yell at the thermostat to either play SpongeBob games or music. But I, I would love to get an actual serious like home speaker for our living room. We have a good system. I have a 5.1 system in our basement. We're more of our family area for the TV and stuff. But in our living room, I want to get a good speaker. So I'm definitely in the market, honestly, for a home pod, especially with 
our growing plethora of HomeKit devices, I want a decent hub for the house as well. Yeah, I mean, then it sounds interesting. I actually learned, and I don't actually know about Ireland, where I currently live, but I learned that the HomePod as well as the HomePod Mini are actually not available in the Netherlands, where I'm from. Do you know why that is? I don't know. I saw one tweet about like this rumor that the HomePod is not available in Australia because like Siri supposedly doesn't work as well. Wow. Oh, this is an Apple decision. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. There is a reason for it. Whatever that is. <laughs> right. I mean, the Apple One stuff, that doesn't surprise me because there's like weird streaming rules and like financial things. But about actual hardware not being available, that seems like strange. Who knows? But the iPhone 12s are available. And like I said, I'm so happy with my iPhone 10. But, you know, maybe this year I'll see what, what happens in a bit. Maybe I'll consider upgrading to what would then probably be the, the 12 Pro. Hello, everyone. I want to let you know about my speaking schedule for the rest of the year. I will, in fact, be speaking at three conferences over the next month. These include iOS DevCamp DC 2020 on October 30th, as well as releasing two videos for the online conference Back to Mac on November 6th and 7th. You can find links to both those conferences in the show notes below. But in the middle of November, between the 17th and 20th of November, I will be also speaking at NS Spain 2020, which will be, of course, a remote conference, just as all these conferences this year are. And for those of you who don't know, NS Spain is one of the most well-known conferences about Apple platform development. And it is going to be this year online carefully crafted by the community for the community. And it will be going on for a continuous 36 hours. This is going to be amazing. If you've been a listener of the show, you probably are familiar with some of our guests, such as Paul Hudson and Donnie Walls, who will both be speaking there. I will be speaking, of course, and my topic will be something that is near and dear to me. My talk at NS Spain 2020 will be on Swift Packages the dependency management of the future. If you've heard me talk about Swift packages before, then you know how much I'm interested and excited to be speaking on this topic. So if you are interested in going to NS Spain this year, then you can get a 10% discount by using the promo code MPOWERAPPS, all one word, again, MPOWERAPPS, to get 10% off your ticket to NS Spain this year. I highly recommend you check this conference out. There's going to be a great set of speakers. And with 10% off, this is really reasonable to attend from the comfort of your home. Thank you to iOS DevCamp DC and Back to Mac for inviting me to speak this year. And most especially, thank you, NS Spain, for offering a discount to our listeners and for inviting me to speak. These are some great conferences. I highly recommend you attend them. And if you do, I look forward to seeing you there. Bye. So I had a 10s and I was pretty much set on upgrading this year. What I was going to upgrade, I was uncertain about. I did upgrade the Apple Watch to a Series 6. I like my Apple Watch. I like a serious Apple Watch. That made sense from a 4 to a 6. I really like it. I like the always on display. Blood oxygen probably works about like half the time, honestly. And I think it helps if I have an actual Apple strap when I do it. 
But as far as like the phone, I ended up actually upgrading from a 10s to an 11 Pro Max. I really like it. I just wanted to save like 300 bucks because I wasn't up for upgrading to like a full on 12. And I know a lot of people say, oh, you should get the latest and greatest. But to me, like the big thing for me to upgrade to the 11 this year was that night mode. Um, I really I like the photography stuff and the photography stuff on the 12 Pro, to be quite honest, is a bit overwhelming. And it wasn't worth the extra price of buying a brand new 12 Pro. So I ended up getting like a used 11 Pro Max. And I really like it. I love the big screen. I haven't had a big screen in a long time because I have the 10S. Before that, I had the 8 Plus. But it's definitely harder to grab. But the big screen is just so nice. Yeah, I don't know. Like I had a 6 Plus and I had a 7 Plus and then went to the 10. And I've never really regretted going back to a smaller screen size because... While I kind of enjoyed the bigger screen size, I also don't really feel like it really made a difference. So like, I don't really see myself going back to like the bigger size. One thing is like, I wish that you can fit more app icons and especially widgets on the home screen on a Mac. Like, I feel like that would make it much more worthwhile. I just, I wanted to try Max. I wanted to see what it was like, but I, I'm kind of living in the same boat as you, where it's like, you can pretty much get everything you need on a 10s. The Max is just blown up bigger, honestly. What's interesting as well is like, I use the widgets, which I like. And you have this, I don't even know, what do they call it? This like app? Oh, app library. Yeah. And it's like, I have this. I have this already. I've had this for three years. It's just Spotlight. That's all I use to <laughs> launch an app. Like my it actual is. home screen was empty. I don't use it. No, I I understand totally. To me, like the best thing about the 12 Pro is not all the updates to the camera. It's not 5G, certainly, because who knows when we'll actually have a decent 5G connection. To me, it's the MagSafe stuff. Okay, this makes Qi charging a lot more convenient because I, I used it briefly with my 8 Plus and I liked it, but it was never convenient for me to put it in the right position. But like to me, this like MagSafe stuff makes a lot more sense. And I like that they have like wallet cases and things like that because that's what I use. So I'm not sure about this, but I think you can buy the case that basically has the MagSafe and then you can add something on top of it. So from my understanding, you can have an 11 buy the case from the 12. Oh no, that doesn't fit. Well, so the thing about the iPhone 12 is that it actually has the magnet. So even if you put on a iPhone 12 case, assuming it would fit, there is no magnet on the 11 to actually like make sure that it connects. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somehow I thought the magnet was somehow also in the case, but I might have been confused because when I was looking for compatibility for the cases, I think it also, like, if you would pick for an iPhone 11, it would say that it would also work. So, like, maybe that's that was just a bug on the website. Yeah, it could be. They're even changing the case quite significantly. Do you like the curve or do you like the new solid design that's more like the 5S and the new iPad Pro? I love the 5. I think that was my favorite design ever. So, yeah, I'm very happy with it. I agree with you, yeah. So I upgraded to the Series 6. I like it. I like it a lot. Have you upgraded your watch at all? I haven't had an Apple Watch since the original one. <laughs> and I also no longer have that Apple Watch because I kind of fell in the rabbit hole of mechanical watches. That being said, though, I have been thinking about an Apple Watch recently. So, you know, maybe that will be something for next year. But let's see. Maybe I'll jump on that wagon again. If you're really into mechanical watches, honestly, I don't I don't know how you'd be into the Apple Watch. Like 
I like the Apple Watch. I would suggest people get the Apple Watch. But for people who are into mechanical watches, that's like a whole other like desire there. The Apple Watch doesn't really fit. I would definitely be double wearing. So that would be one of the awkward things to get used to. And what I'm really interested in, it's kind of weird that I really want an Apple Watch for it, is the fitness stuff. Because when I had the Apple Watch, I was closing my rings every single day. I was like, I was increasing this like calorie goal and that really motivated me. So that's why I would get it. Like I would turn off all notifications. I would not have any apps, presumably. It would just be a fitness, like a tracking device. Why get an Apple Watch? Why not get a cheaper device that does fitness tracking. I've gotten used to, and I really like the apps that Apple offers with the, you know, filling the rings. I'm probably just like, yeah, okay, fair. <laughs> Cause yeah, I mean, I understand if you're in the ecosystem, why not? Like it makes sense, especially if you want to get like a series three or an SE, like that cover all you need. Yeah. I mean, that's something to think about. Like normally I would also say like, you don't necessarily need the latest device, or especially if you're like in the middle of a cycle and you need a new device, just go for the last one, right? Although like having the iPhone 10 and not really needing an upgrade, I might just go for like whatever is the latest and greatest and then just ride it out basically. But yeah, we'll see. So this is a topic that a lot of folks have asked about. And I think it's something that is not necessarily glamorous, but it's probably something we should talk about. And I wanted to talk to you about it. That was uh, documentation. Now there's like different types of documentation. It could be internal at a company. It could be like external public APIs. Could just be like an open source project with readmes and wikis. What have you found like the biggest challenge as far as documentation is concerned when you've done it in whatever venue it's been? I think documentation is an art on its own, right? It's not just programming and add some documentation like it's really something that needs you know a separate look at and something that definitely needs to be considered so i think you have to figure out what works i think that that's a big part right just getting into the groove of writing documentation and and knowing what works but it's also very difficult to keep it up to date and i've seen that time and time again where updating documentation and and making sure that it fits the current situation is very difficult. It's funny you say updating because that was like Frank's question on Twitter. Frank Corville asked, any ideas or experience using tooling to keep documentation accurate? For me, part of it would be updating the code comments. So that way, when you run some sort of CI setup, that it will build that documentation when it's more API type. But then there's the documentation that's not just like telling you what a class does or what a specific method does, but there might be more like documentation that explains how to do something, kind of a 101 type thing that you'd see at the top of a class in Apple Docs or something like that, or perhaps like just explaining going through the workflow of a particular operation. What are some tips that you might have for keeping your documentation up to date? I think, and this is uh, something I've been saying for a while now, documentation is not a thing on its own, right? I gave a talk in, in Amsterdam in 2018, and in that I said, code, documentation, and tests. Those are the three things that ideally would be something that you build. Like if you write a function, you write documentation for the function, you write a test or multiple tests for that function. And if you keep those three things as like this iterative approach of like, okay, 
one comes first, then the other, then the other. It doesn't really matter what where you start. But if you keep those three together, you will basically iteratively improve and see this is something where I can update the documentation. This is something where the function might do too much or too little, or this is where we might have an edge case. So I think that's something where I start, where I really try to keep those three together. And when I do tackle something, if it's refactoring, I start with one of those three, try to understand it, and then go from there. The three being testing, documentation, and source code? Correct. Yeah, that's a really good way to think about it because I think in a lot of cases, folks just do the one where it's like doing the source code, but they don't do write unit tests. And then, of course, the last piece is they don't do the documentation. So it's a god-awful mess to deal with. And so it's like really good that you've kind of built that relationship between those three different pieces. How about like when it comes to other pieces of documentation, like exp- explanations or like tutorials, what do you do for those pieces? Those are definitely, you know, a very separate thing. And I would say are, are even more difficult to keep up to date. One thing that I've seen work quite well is make this documentation interactive, right? So if you say you have this part of your networking code or you have this part, some part in your app, Make it so that somebody new or somebody new to that part of the code base can, through that documentation, understand what's going on. And then hopefully, like, they have this, like, hands on kind of like, okay, this is how you add a new section or this is how you add a new, you know, decodable type, whatever it might be. And then, like, have them critically check, like, okay, is this up to date? Is this what I'm seeing indeed? Or is this something that is out of date? What kind of documentation have you worked on? Have you worked on both like ex- internal company docs as well as external public APIs? Or have you also focused on open source stuff as well? I mean, I've basically done all of those. So at my last job, most of the things we worked on were internal. Uh, I've worked in a, in a team for about a year where we had some external things uh, or public, you know, public things on, on GitHub. Uh, so I've worked on those. Worked on like header documentation, but also on just internal documentation. And I've also been working on open source for quite a while. So there I've worked on apps and, uh, and libraries. So yeah, I think I've covered quite a wide range with that. Yeah, I would say so as well. What do you think are the big differences between each of these besides like just the tool set? I mean, arguably they should be similar. Right, I think there's not really a good excuse not to document your public APIs internally because it will help you. It will help you figure out where bugs are earlier. It will help you with, with edge cases. It will help you write those tests. And if a colleague that isn't familiar with the code, right, like I've tried to explain this, right? Like imagine that you have UI kit without documentation. Like how are you going to get this to work, right? Like Sure, within a company, you can probably talk to some people, but some people will also leave, et cetera, et cetera. So arguably, they should be similar. But I've noticed that, especially in open source, people generally feel this need to like, okay, if I open source something, it needs to be perfect, which I don't agree with. If you have something cool and you want to open source it, there's no need for refinement. I mean, sure, that's great at some point, but just start with open sourcing and go from there. But especially with like some mature uh, open source projects, like it's really we have a core, we have this documented, and if we add something, we have some some linter setup or some rule setup that we expect 
new documentation. So in open source, most of the time it's easier, but it's kind of weird because technically it shouldn't really be. No, I agree. I think it's best to start iteratively with something small that works and just build up from there. When you did the internal documentation, was that all on private repos or what, were you using some other software for that? The internal documentation in terms of source code is, is just with the source code, right? So the header documentation and then like all the other documentation, that is something we ran on GitHub pages, but internally. Gotcha. Okay. Hey, folks. So here's the thing. You're probably thinking to yourself, I want to build a brand new app. Or maybe you already have an app in the App Store. I think now is probably the time you're going to want to really optimize that app in the App Store. And what I mean by that, make it easy for people to find it and for people to download it. It's one thing that you can build this great app for the iPhone 12 or iOS 14 or watchOS 7. It's another thing being able to help folks who have their brand new iPhone or their hand-me-down being able to find all these new apps. And this is where app figures really comes in. They give you everything you need to do this all in one place. So if you have a really good idea or an app idea and you want to see how many people are searching for that, app figures is going to be your spot. If you already have an app in the app store and you want to see what words you need to use or what terms you need to use so that people can find you easily, app figures is for you. And it's really easy. All you have to do is use their promo code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. That's it. That's not asking a lot. And AppFigures, they don't just have this really great universal analytics dashboard. They also provide a lot of other great app store tools for optimization. And that's really the name of the game. That's going to improve your visibility, and that's going to help you find more users. AppFigures has more than a decade of providing mobile analytics and insights. And they also have this new tool called the Competitor Intelligence Dashboard. And that allows you to track competitor downloads and understand what strategies you're going to use so that you can grow your bottom line. That's the thing. You can have a great idea. You can get users maybe by personally reaching out to them. But if you can improve your visibility on the App Store, that's really the name of the game. So go ahead, head over to appfigures.com to try AppFigures for free. If you like it, both the new and existing customers can use the special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. So go ahead, give it a shot, and let me know what you think. And if you need any help, try out some of those new app teardowns that Ariel has been doing. They've been fantastic, and they've been really providing a lot of help to me, and I think to a lot of folks, to what they need to do to get their App Store apps up and working. So go ahead and try it out with Empower 3030, get 30% off for the next three months, or try the link in the show notes below. Thank you, AppFigures, for sponsoring our show. So how about stuff like diagrams or graphics? Have you ever dealt with any of that stuff within your documentation, whether it's in like code, I guess, in a way, or in a readme or a github page i'm definitely not good at that i would say but i've seen and come across some like nice ascii art to explain certain ui elements and how they work yes i've seen that as well i know that we've built quite a bunch of like internal tools or small internal tools that generate certain diagrams so we had somebody that built a tool to understand like what 
like we have a framework, where does it have all the dependencies and like how do they relate to each other? And we've had that also for like the whole app. And I remember that was in our readme and it was just auto updating from a CI job to say like, okay, this is the current like structure of the app basically. So speaking of readmes, I'll post in the show notes some great suggestions of readmes that are available and some guides as well. One thing I've started just researching is building my own personal readme profile on GitHub, which is really fun to do and a great way to get your get your name out there. Have you looked at any of the personal readme stuff? Not really. I've heard of it. Don't know when exactly when it came out, uh, and it looked quite interesting. But I never gotten around to to doing that for myself, and I haven't really seen it in the wild. But it looks super interesting, and I think it's a great addition to GitHub that can definitely help a lot of people, like you know, promote themselves. And uh, I think it's a genius addition. Yeah, and so if you're interested taking a look, there's some great tools out there for building readmes, like building badges and interactive stuff, especially with the personal profiles. And then I tried to like build a good list of readmes of different Swift projects as well and what they do. And there's some really great examples of having a decent table of contents. I think that's a big thing. And just there's the standard licensing and contribution guides and things like that for open source stuff. But just Having a good balance of here's some guides about common stuff to do, but also here's some classes and the different calls that you can make. And I find that really, really helpful for me when I want to like publicize a particular project on GitHub. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it depends on on the project, but definitely I think the most important thing, if you have some kind of library, like have some introductory examples that, you know, you can just get someone started and then, you know, you can go deeper into specific documentation. But I've always been a little, like, I always find it a little awkward when, you know, I would stumble across a project, but not have like find a starting point of like, okay, this is how I can start with it. Or maybe even worse when it's like something that is like a UI and then like the readme doesn't have any images of like, what is this actually? And I'm like, now what? Or like, here's a library that does this UI kit thing, but there's like no picture, no example. And it's like, I don't know what that means. Like I've run into those a few times where I'm just like, I, what would I use this for? I don't even know. Just having a few lines of code, maybe a GIF. I've seen a few GIFs. Those are really helpful to like see an animation of what something actually does in, in the real world. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't want to say something bad about anyone because I think especially if you write something, if you write a tool, if you write an app, if you do whatever, it's easy to just overlook something that is so obvious to you, right? So, and, and I think that's the great thing about open source as well, is you can just make an issue and say like, hey, you know, is this something that I can add? Or you can open a pull request to suggest something like that. And hopefully that will just help everyone. Yeah, I agree. So going back to Frank's question, were there any like tooling that can help keep your documentation accurate? Like I said, I just set up my CI to build documentation on the fly based on code comments. And we'll talk about tooling in just a little bit. But was there anything else you were going to suggest? I think that's a good one to basically just have an overview of like, okay, have new things been been documented? I have never really used any automated things for it. But like technically, especially if you have documentation already and you see that you're making changes to an existing function, there's a high likelihood that you need to change the documentation as well. So that's easy to forget but also quite easy to do so i think you know getting into the habit of that would be great 
I would not be surprised if there are some linters for it, but I don't know any uh, specifically. Yeah, I don't know if like Swift Lint or Swift Format or any of that stuff or Danger could take care of that, unfortunately. But that'd be nice. But speaking of tools for building documentation, so the two two main ones that I know about, um, the biggest one uh, is Jazzy, which is by the folks at Realm. And that builds essentially something similar to what Apple has as far as documentation is concerned. And they're more like full-on HTML web page sites of your code documentation. And then the other one I have been using more lately is source docs. I really like because that just builds markdown that can stay within the framework of GitHub. Um, So in other words, I can link and it just stays within a GitHub page or excuse me, a GitHub repo. So it really depends if you like want a full on site, there's jazzy but if you just want to stay within a github repo there's just using source docs the other thing is you could use source docs and then run a static site generator to build html out of the markdown as well so you have a lot of options there what have you used in the past so we've been using jazzy and i've been quite a fan of it because i'm also quite a fan of you know the apple documentation i think over the years you know getting more experience working with with Xcode, with the Apple tools, like I've been using the documentation more and more. So having that familiar environment is is really useful. But like having something in Markdown also sounds really nice. And again, this like balance between them would be great. I think if you built something that is open source, having everything just on GitHub is like a lower barrier for people to just look at that. But you know, I haven't seen any examples of that. But like with HTML, of course, you have a little bit more you know, flexibility to to build something that is maybe more, you know, more scannable or for longer documentation that's maybe a little more comfortable. Right. And I think it depends on the use case too, like what exactly you want to do. Have you seen, just answering Chris Stapp's question, have you seen some interesting ways documentation has been presented? I think it's not necessarily like figuring out an interesting way to present it i think it's more important to have good documentation and present that in a way that is easily accessible i will say like the one thing is you don't you almost don't want to be too innovative like you said if it already follows a pattern like using the way apple presents their documentation you're probably better off sticking with that pattern as opposed to like doing something too innovative that breaks from that pattern that people are used to. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, search search would be nice, but like just having something so people can know exactly how to find what they're looking for. I will say like the more innovative stuff I find on like front pages or stuff that is outside of the API, things like badges and animations, especially like within the JavaScript community, you'll have stuff that actually is presented within the page itself. I don't know how you do that with Swift necessarily, but like if there's some way you can have the code, somebody be able to run the actual code within the browser, that's nearly impossible in Swift. But point being, have people see a demonstration, the closest thing to a demonstration on the page itself is going to be the best way to get people to actually understand how something works. Totally. I think there are some websites where you can basically just run Swift on the web and it will just compile it somewhere on a web server. But yeah, that's probably not as as easy. 
So Chris Stapps also had a couple of really good questions I didn't think about as far as like consuming documentation. What are your five best approaches for consuming documentation? That was his question and why it works. Um, five is a lot. It is a lot. I agree. I think what I mentioned earlier, right? It's like over the years of working with, with Xcode and working with the Apple platforms, I've really changed the way I browse documentation from, you know, using a lot of Stack Overflow and using a lot of just searching on the internet to like going back to Xcode and actually reading the documentation. So I think it's really like figuring out what works for you, right? And as an author of a library or of an app, like making sure that documentation is available in different ways, right? So just code documentation might be great for some, just explaining what does this function do, whereas other people might learn better by getting an example and, and seeing what that does, right? And having an image or a GIF or something like that. So I think that would be great is to make sure that your documentation is accessible in multiple ways. I think for me, like when I want to learn something, there is first the tutorial like that's what I would consume is like a tutorial, start off with that and then an API to then like deep dive into something because I need the tutorial to know the use case, a demonstration to know the use case of how something works and what is the end result. And then from there I can step in and like really deep dive into, okay, here are the different flags you can put in. Here are the different options you can use. And that's kind of the way I would consume documentation. Of course, then you start deep diving into an API and then you find that, oh, yeah, you can use this flag, but on iOS 12.3 between November and December on an odd month, blah, 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 it does this crash. So you have to make sure you do that. Like that's when you start finding all the different like use cases and, and, and things like that that are like exceptions to the rule. And that's where like Stack Overflow or your favorite Slack or your – Apple documentation forum, if that actually like works sometimes, is super helpful. You know what I mean? That's that's exactly right. Uh, where you have these multiple uh, ways of accessing documentation. What I really like is uh, what you're saying is like start with an example. Start with this tutorial. I remember when I started with SwiftUI. Like, sure, you can read the documentation, you can get started, but you don't really have a feeling of like how am I expected to work with this API, right? Because obviously an API is not just one function. It's like, it's a set of rules, basically. It's a, it's an idea. And you benefit from knowing the idea behind an API and, you know, basically the the way it's supposed to be used rather than just, okay, how am I going to use a very, like, singular part of this instruction? It's interesting to, you know, every episode we have to talk about SwiftUI, so I may as well talk about SwiftUI. That is a really interesting use case of how to, and I hate the word, but I'm going to use it, evangelize people on a particular new technology. I think Apple did a really good job with its tutorial. Like, you know what I mean? With the one, the animated one where you can like pick your favorite mountain or park or something. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like that's a really good example for where you first start off. But I think like what ends up happening is you're like, okay, that's great. I can build this app, but then how about, how do I do an alert? How do I do this? How do I do that? Like that's where you end up Googling and usually you end up getting taken to like stack overflow or Paul Hudson's website. And he does a good job explaining something. And that's like, 
how I end up learning something new. Is it like it starts off at Apple and Apple has a lot of good background and how something might work, but then it ends up being, I have to Google something to find out. Oh, actually iOS 14 has this thing where you have to add this flag and da, 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 da. And then you start understanding more and more, like getting a more fuller idea of how an API works. Totally. Yeah. And I, I think again, this is like, you know, having different documentation available, having multiple ways of accessing this information available and seeing what works for you, right? I mean, there's there's no perfect way to do it. I agree. You know, you can't give one overview of Swift UI and like, okay, I can build a whole app now. Like you will face your own problems. You will face, you know, these kind of things. So I actually uh, skip those Apple uh, things on, on Swift UI because I've actually only used Swift UI to build a design system. So really just UI and not really an app. And the way that I've learned the most there is one is pairing and two. So we had, again, had this really iterative approach. So we started with like our custom button and it was like a monster of a class. We were copy and pasting. We were just, you know, just getting it done and then just looking at the whole picture. And it's like, okay, what can we do next? And then we figured out, okay, there's button style so we can refactor things. And we just had this iterative approach to learn about Swift UI and to figure out like what kind of style do we want to want to use and what basically is this the vision of this design system which in the end was also basically just we want to f- have it feel like Swift UI because if it if we just point it towards UIKit again then you know why would we start in Swift UI in the first place Yeah that's a really good point A couple other things I wanted to mention is the power of videos it's really easy for anybody to post a video of how to do something it's free essentially to upload a video to YouTube and host it on a web, like embed it on a website. And so use that if you can, because that's a really good visualization, especially for non-technical people of seeing how something works. Another thing I use for consuming documentation on occasion is the app dash. I don't know if you've used dash before, but if you want to consume documentation on a separate iPad, for instance, uh, it has that capability. It does all sorts of code documentation, but it does the Apple stuff as well. So I would highly recommend checking that out. And then I will recommend a book as well, uh, made to stick by the Heath brothers. They really do a good job explaining how sometimes concepts that we're really familiar with can be very foreign to other folks. One of the things they talk about is getting into the mind of your audience and how they think about things in their mental model before you go ahead and try to show how to do something, I guess, if that makes any sense. Because sometimes we might use certain jargon that just other folks aren't particularly familiar with, for example, and and that could just be more confusing than it is helpful. Yeah, I think that's a big part of documentation, actually. On the one hand, it's like getting into the skin of your your user, right? And it's something I try to do quite often is just to look at things from a different perspective and say, what if, what if this, what if that, and see what we can improve. I, I will say there's a really good example in the book about, I forgot what the study was. This isn't made to stick where like they asked people to tap on the table. I think it was like, Yankee Doodle Dandy or something like that. And like people would tap it and like, they'd be like, Oh yeah, that sounds the people who are tapping would know that that it sounds like that song. But like to other people, they're like, this is just nonsense. What are they doing? And I think that's like a good example of bad documentation where you think like, Oh, this makes complete sense. But to people outside of your circle, uh, it might be complete nonsense. 
Right. And otherwise, knowing how to write documentation is so different, right? Like one thing you mentioned is like some concepts might not be familiar to others. You might use certain jargon. You might use certain words that downplay something, right? So what I've seen a lot of time is like you can easily do that or you can simply do this or it's just this and like just leave those words out you don't want to assume that this will be simple for someone because you do not know and like there's no reason to add those kind of words but like learning that and like figuring out your writing style for documentation is like a complete different thing yeah that's not something we can just expect from anyone that's a really good point so before we close out i wanted to ask how would you advise someone if they want to get started on improving their documentation? You can start anywhere. I think going back to tests, code, documentation, whatever you're working on, if you're working on something new, document it, get some feedback from others, see how you can get into this rhythm of code, documentation, and tests and see how it helps you, see if it helps you. Or otherwise, if you're looking at something that already exists or expanding on something that already exists, if you have the time or if you can, just start by reading the code and documenting it, assuming that it isn't, and trying to understand, okay, what does this code really do? Can I improve this code? Can I break things up? And it's not necessarily what you want to do immediately because maybe you don't want to touch it at all so that you can just add something on top of it. But just thinking through that, I think, is a really good process of you know trying to understand things, documenting it, maybe writing a test for it, and I think that's that's the simple way. And now I'm saying simple. It's not a simple way. It's not simple. But that's a way to be thorough, to start, you know, making progress on understanding something, making progress on documenting something and making it easier for the next person, which might also be the future you, to tackle this part of the code base. And there's a lot of great examples out there too, especially in the open source community, if you're looking for a place to start where they show how to do things and how, and, and that's what I do honestly, is a lot of times just look at good examples and, and see how you can improve your documentation as well. I think that's, that's always the best advice. Oh yeah. Definitely don't feel afraid to be inspired by other projects. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Boss. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Boss Thomas. Awesome. People can find me on Twitter at LeoGTN. My company is Bright Digit. Please take some time to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and post your review of the podcast and of this episode. If you have any feedback or you have any topics you want me to cover on the show, please let me know. Reach out to me wherever you can. We look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for having me.